good morning and good Shabbos. Um, I want to open in prayer. And this morning as I was getting ready, 60 rockets went off within an hour. It's three, it's three o'clock in the afternoon over in Israel. So during the length of time that I'll be speaking, just imagine, and that's a rocket a second. Okay, well, I like King David because he tells it like it is. So <laughs> let us pray. And I'm going to read Psalm 10. Why, Adonai, are you standing far off? Why hide yourself in times of trouble? No, I'm going to switch to Psalm 11. I'm sorry. Let's start again. Judgment from heaven is what the title is. In Adonai, I have taken shelter. How can you say to my soul, fly like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend the bow. They fix their arrow on the bowstring so they can shoot from the shadows at those who are upright in heart. If our foundations are destroyed, what should the righteous do? Adonai is in his holy temple. Adonai's throne is in heaven. His eyes are watching. His eyelids observe the children of men. Adonai examines the righteous, but the wicked and one loving violence his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain down fire, brimstone, and scorching wind as the portion of their cup. For Adonai is righteous. His, he loves justice. The upright will see his face. Thank you, God, for going to battle for us. And I pray that as you are with each person in their bunkers, that they would, that you would make yourself known to him, that they would sense your presence. In Messiah's name I pray, amen. Well, last week I, I, I laid some foundations and I want to repeat a couple things before we go to Terezin, a ghetto outside of Prague in Czechoslovakia. First of all, the Holocaust was the genocide of the Jews. There were other genocides, but when we speak of the Holocaust, it is of the Jews because the, Jew, the, the Nazis wanted to annihilate all the Jewish people. The second point I want to make that I talked about last week, the Jews the perpetrators, the collaborators, the bystanders, they are all human beings. If we call perpetrators, whether they were the Nazis or they are Hamas, and we call them monsters, then we say we're not like them, and we just set them aside. We must not set them aside. We must remember they are human beings as well. All right. When the extraordinary become the ordinary. I heard this presentation, Stephanie, gave, Stephanie Kay gave this presentation uh, at a graduate seminar for the Holocaust 
in D.C. in 2017, and I was so moved by it because what she did was introduce us to some of the people in Terezin in this ghetto, and I would like you to meet them as well. Terezin was a ghetto outside Prague in Czechoslovakia. It was unique. It was set aside as a propaganda tool. It was unique in that only Jews were sent there. And when the Jewish leadership, they, the, the Nazis presented it that it's going to be a, a city where you can establish and live and run your city as Jews, they were rather, they were welcome the idea. They were, they believed that um, staying on Czech soil versus being sent away was a good thing. And they thought that they could possibly prove to the Germans that they were able to, of managing and running an efficient city and that they would be indispensable to the war effort. Of course, it was all an illusion, but that's when, when Jacob Edelston and the initial team of leadership went to Terezin, that's what they thought. There was a core group. Now, I want you to, to remember our Torah, God laid forth how to establish and live in community. And this is what they established in Terezin. They had a council of elders. The uh, Germans set that up. In reality, the Germans were pulling the strings, but he let, they let them think that they were running the show. They, this group organized municipal services, such as housing and electricity and water, sewage and sanitation, policing, religious, judicial, postal systems. They organized labor detachments. On the medical front, I was amazed to find that they had a health care system. They had a home for newborns. The old and sick people care for the blind, disabled, the deaf, the dumb. Home for toddlers, outpatient clinics, free dental chairs, ophthalmologist, ear, nose, and throat, a dermatologist. The children's hospital, they cared for as many as 100 children. They had three doctors and 30 nurses and a psychiatric ward. They had a library of over 6,000 volumes. They had rules for decorum. Now the elder, the first elder of the council, one of the things that the Nazis expected the men to do was to tip their hat whenever they saw a German on the streets. Jacob Edelston never wore a hat. That was his one, one of his stands of resistance. Unfortunately, what this group of elders also had to do is they had to determine who would be on the transport list. The Germans would say, okay, we want 1,000 to 5,000. This 
council had to go and meet and determine who would be on the list. So let's, it had another name, uh, Teresindet, and I'm not real good at pronouncing it, but it's on the map there. Um, but to introduce it better than I can possibly, I found this on Yad Vashem's website. Terezin, or Theresienstadt in German, located 60 kilometers away from Prague, was a ghetto established by the Nazis for the Jews of the Czech lands and also Central and Western Europe. It was originally established Can in the 18th that, century okay? as a garrison Might turn up the volume, and during please. World War I, it functioned as a military prison. The Nazis invaded... While we're waiting, this town was held, was built for 7,000 people. Typically, 40 to 50 to 60,000 people lived there. Jewish people lived there at any one given time. One point held as many as 58,000 Jewish prisoners. More than 150,000 Jews passed through Terezin until its liberation on May 8, 1945. Over 34,000 perished there, and 88,000 were deported by cattle cars to the east to be murdered. For the Nazis, Terezin had an additional purpose. It was to be a great lie, touted to the world as a model ghetto, a good place, a haven for Jews in war-torn Europe. For propaganda purposes, the Nazis twice tried to portray the ghetto in film. The second film was a result of a visit of the Red Cross in June 1944. To create the illusion of normalcy, Terezin underwent what the Nazis called the Great Beautification. To impress the Red Cross, the route was chosen in advance and locations were carefully staged. The film was never shown. Almost all of its participants were sent to Auschwitz and murdered shortly after the filming. One aspect of Terezin is that many of the Jews sent there were prominent in the fields of culture. Painters, artists, musicians, educators, philosophers, and others. Operas were written in Terezin. Artists painted and drew there. Musicians performed jazz and classical music in front of audiences. Hundreds of lectures and all variety of topics were given to eager listeners. And a library was a cherished source of knowledge and escapism. We see an incredible flourishing of culture and artistic life in the ghetto, even in the shadow of hunger, disease, exhaustion, and fear of deportation. Very few photographs exist which portray the actual life of the prisoners in Terezin. One unique source we have is from a group of artists who in the ghetto 
undertook a secret and dangerous mission to document the true nature of daily life in Terezin. Through their paintings, they portrayed the overcrowded conditions, the hunger, the deprivation, despair, deportations, and the constant presence of brutality and death. Some of these artists paid with their lives. When the Nazis learned of this activity, they were deported eastward to Auschwitz. Okay, uh, if you would end the video, please. Thank you, and you will need to end videos for me throughout the presentation because I don't have access to do that. How does destiny differ from fate? Fate means a compelled existence. Destiny is an existence by volition. Destiny is created by man himself who chooses and makes his own way in life. Judaism has always believed that man has it within his power to take fate into his own hands and shape it into the destiny of a life full of meaning and saturated with the joy of living, turning discouragement into significance. And we have the honor of getting to know some of those people today. If you notice up in the corner, there's a symphony going on. That symphony strings uh, study of strings for the orchestra was written by Peter Haas. He eventually perished, but the conductor, Carol Onslow, went back after the war, found the scraps of paper from that symphony, and pulled it together. The first ensemble that Carol pulled together had 16 first violinists, 12 seconds, eight violas, six cellos, and one double bass, bass. So it was a place of art, as, as the announcer said, there were a lot of um, artistic people that were sent there. There were three groups. The first were the elderly Jews. Second were World War I veterans and disabled. Jews that honorably served in World War I. And those people of renown that if they went, up miss they went missing, it might red raise red flags. And there was worship there. It was the year 5704. And they had little rooms and attics and cellars that they worshipped. Even though they did not have Shabbat off and they worked, they still had places to worship. Now we had um, the exhibit of Vedem, the magazine written by the teenage boys, here at the Bremen Museum a few months ago. That's when Herschel and I first met. We were down... Herschel Greenblatt, a survivor that's going to speak to us later. We met there. I was down looking at this museum. Well, here is a little video. It's a, about the uh, editor.
Peterkins. This is a trailer to a documentary written about him. Juswell, for example, wrote a novel in 80 days around the world. Better wrote a novel in one second around the world. Friday, September 19, 1941. The weather is foggy. Jews were told to wear a badge, which looks approximately like this. When I went to school, I counted 69 sheriffs. I never saw anything he wrote that he is frightened or worried or... Because everything in his diary he wrote, it was just recording facts, not feelings. It didn't feel a, a need to record his feelings because his feelings he remembered and the facts he was afraid to forget. Hold on to this picture and remember it, Moon Landscape. A lot of talent. Because I know that Peter would have been someone written up in the annals of humanity. Okay, you may end the video now. Thank you. Remember the challenger we had an Israeli astronaut, Elan Rahman, went up before he went to the flight, he went to Yad Vashem and asked if there was something he could take with him. They gave him that picture of the moon landscape. Peter was, had read all of Jules Verne and loved space exploration. He was a child prodigy between 8 and 14. He had written, already written six books and numerous stories and he was 14 when he was sent to Terzine. That picture, the original, went with Alain Rahman in the space shuttle. After, after, it, after the Challenger tragedy, President Bush mentioned Peter Gintz and the uh, picture. There was a family living in the home. They had bought it from friends of Peter Gintz's parents in Czechoslovakia. They had gone through a number of papers in their attic, but he hadn't, and he had gotten rid of a lot of them, but he hadn't gotten rid of this one set, and he went back up there. They were Peter's diaries. He found them in 2003, and those diaries were published after that. So, uh, on this drawing here, there are three cannonballs. He had a, a, a sly sense of humor. They are humor, the words on there are humor, laughter, and satire. These uh, magazines, the uh, first 30 were published on a typewriter, and do you know that before he went into Terezin, he worked at a typewriter repair shop. 
and they found this typewriter in an old school in, in, in Terezine, and he kept it going for 30, uh, 30 issues. And they did a, the rest were handwritten, 10 to 15 pages. And they had, set, they had uh, interviews of people. They'd walk around and interview people. They had poetry. They had opinion pieces. They even had a little bathroom humor. After all, they were 14 to 16-year-olds. Um, and every Friday night, they published it, which meant that in their dorm room, they read it out loud. They only had one copy. And they read it and critiqued it. And they had one student standing guard because they would, if an SS man approached, they would hide it. So these kids were very brave. Here's another artist, Helga. She has a wonderful story, which I am going to play for you now. She was uh, one of the students uh, who did a lot of art. There was an art teacher. And um, she said we could only take 50 kilos, about 110 pounds of goods, when we were told that we were going there. She said everyone squeezed a little something of special value, but rather than me tell her, tell you, let's let her tell you. Když jsme odjížděli do Terezína, směli jsme si vzít sebou každý 50 kilo zavazadel. Ale měli jsme, každý z nás snad si do těch 50 kilo vtěsnali něco, co pro něho mělo nějakou zvláštní cenu. Někdo si tam dal knížku, hudebníci si třeba brali nějaký hudební nástroj, hudební materiál, noty. A já jsem si tam zabalila krabičku vodových barev, pár pastelek a trochu papíru. A to byl vlastně celý materiál, který mi vystačil, ta krabička těch pastelek a těch vodových barev. Byl jediný materiál a vystačilo mi to ty tři roky. Mě bylo 12 let, byl prosinec, venku byl sníh a já jsem namalovala svoji první dětskou kresbu. Byly to dvě děti, jak stavějí sněhuláka. A tuhle kresbičku jsem poslala tatínkovi tajně, protože my jsme bydleli odděleně muži v jiných kasárnách, ženy taky jinde. Tak jsem tatínkovi poslala tuhle kresbu, ty děti, jak stavějí sněhuláka. A tatínek mi na to odpověděl, maluj, co vidíš. Tatínek také napsal báseň, kterou věnoval vlastně Karlu Ledečovi. To byl hudebník, člen České filharmonie, který se také dostal do geta. Za všechny prosím, drahí příteli, musíš nám hrát, nás choré uzdravovat. Dožít se chvíle chcem, jen přijde-li a nechci nezhynout, jak stádo božích hovat. OK, stop the video, please. Essentially, she drew that little painting and she sent it to her father. She snuck it to him because they lived in separate dorms. The men lived in one, women and small children in another, and other children in other dorms. And he wrote back, draw what you see. And that's what she did. And her father wrote a poem, and it was dedicated to the leader of the Czech Philharmonic, 
who ended up in the ghetto. He said, on behalf of us all, dear friends, play to us and make us well again. We must live each moment to the full if we don't die like cattle. Uh, I got to read a book of hers. It was about her art instructor, whom we'll meet. A friend of mine um, had met her, and she Helga signed the book for her. Now, Gonda and Walter were two that came in that core group. The, the leadership wanted the children in particular to be specially taken care of, to be protected as much from the horrors as well as to grow them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, Gonda, he was, he was really active in the Zionist movement and in the uh, Jewish athlete movement. And um, he was helping youth make Aliyah. He was quite the Zionist. And he was doing all this and then was sent to Zerazine. He What he did is he pulled together youth youths group people to take care of the youth, educators, teachers, psychologists, a pediatrician. And there were probably 450 children. And each household had also like a mentor or a house mother or house father. They celebrated birthdays. Um, the older, they had their schools and learning that took place at night or for the little ones during the day, but if the SS came, they would quickly put them away and start um, playing games. Walter, now he was the uh, one who was in charge of the group that Peter was in. And um, he was a communist and he had them set up a government of their own. They had that was called the Republic of Skid. That was their country. It was based on one of Walter's favorite books. It was about an orphanage in Russia. They had an anthem, a banner, a shield. They had weekly gener uh, general meetings to discuss problems. At night, after the lights went out, he'd, he'd often climb into the bunk bed and tell them stories. And he talked to the boys about things that teenage boys needed to know about. He didn't punish them. The boys punished and handled the uh, discipline themselves. They had specific tasks in the community. He had them write, obviously, because they um, did the vetum. But they had, there were 30 to 40 children, and there were bunks on either side of the room, three-tiered. In the center, there was another narrow uh, aisleway, which they decorated like the town square in Prague. And um, they held lectures, debates in the evening, lessons in math, history, geography, and Hebrew for four hours a day in the attics to avoid inspection. IQ tests were given. The boys loved Walter. 
they did. There was a group of artists and that the uh, person from Yad Vashem talked about and Leo Haas was one of them. They were, there were about 34 artists and um, architects that were assigned to Terezin and the Germans had them draw maps and charts and whatever. They chose secretly to, because there were no cameras, to draw what was actually going on. There were about six of them in, in particular. Then one man, Strauss, he would smuggle the pictures out, he'd buy them and then send them to Switzerland, hoping to get them out. Well, what happened? He thought they'd be safe there. They got published in Swiss newspapers. The Germans found out about it. So they went to Terezin to see who was the, who was the problem. And somebody went up to Leo Strauss and wanted to buy something and he refused. And whoever that person was turned him in anonymously. And that was the break they needed. They rounded them up. They searched Leo Strauss's home and tearing everything apart and they found the drawings in his mattresses, found the artists. There was a little, what, there was a big fortress, Terezin, and there was also a little fortress, which was a prison. The Gestapo, that's where they stayed. So they took them there and their families. And they were interrogated. Of the six, Haas survived. And the other leader, they had a little son, Haas and his wife, adopted Thomas after the war and raised him. Now, you know, all those musicians and so forth, they put on Brindabar. It was a children's opera. It was written in 1938. Uh, they kept it secret. It was in, still in Prague. This opened in 41. And um, the opera tells the story of children who sing in the marketplace to raise much-needed money for their sick mother. The organ player, Brindabar, chases them away, but with that, which is a little monkey, but with the help of some outsiders, the children defeat Brindabar and continue to sing in the square. All those watching and performing the opera understood that Brindabar represented Hitler and were uplifted, even if only briefly, by the fact that evil could be defeated for, by good. The end, the last line was changed to say, he who loves justice and will stand by it fears nothing. And I have a little clip.
Okay, you may stop the video. They performed it 55 times. They brought one score to, um, to Terezine. When I, I sent Stephanie a note, Stephanie Kay, the one who, uh, these are my words these, uh, that, with the presentation, but these are her pictures. I said, who's this guy? And she goes, he's my friend, Freddie Hirsch. Well, Freddie was new Gonda and was active in the scouting and uh, preparing to make, helping children prepare to make Aliyah. Um, Freddie and Gonda, the Maccabee, the athletic group today in Israel, they've each year for the last six, seven years, they've honored somebody. Of those six or seven, two, Gonda and Freddie Hirsch have been honored. And um, he came to Terezin in December 41. He was, he insisted that the children must exercise every day and pay attention to personal hygiene. And he, he felt that that would help their physical and mental condition. The fact that he came from Germany and he had a self-confident manner meant that some of the SS members had a certain degree of respect for him. He thus managed to secure a playground for the children and he even had Maccabee games in the park there in Terezin in 1943. He was sent to Auschwitz with children. There he managed to smooth really good and he got a separate area for the children where they could play and re and this is a family camp in Auschwitz. And he had the children, they were there during the day. He taught them. They sang. As more children came in, he got more buildings. And for the children, the daily roll calls were short, and they were in the building itself. And um, if the SS patrol approached, they knew to sing songs in German and play games. These children in Auschwitz were taught geography, history, math, and they even put on a production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And the walls in that room were painted with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and other fairy tale characters. They, the resistance saw him as a natural leader and they came to him and asked him if he would lead the resistance. And he said he knew that they might kill a few Germans, but it would cost the lives of many. He said, let me go think about it. Give me an hour. When the visitor came back, he found him unconscious. He had taken an overdose of drugs. He committed suicide. but he was a mighty man while he was alive. Now this lady was the one that I, if, you, if you've heard me talk about this presentation at all over the, since 2017, I have talked about Friedel. 
but I learned more about her. She was a she was a well-known artist. She she studied in Germany at, at this famous artist school. She was an artist, an architect. She built furniture. When she was in prison, because she was a communist, she learned, taught herself to embroider while she made repaired prison clothes. She had worked on theater sets. She had suffered from depression and was working with a psychologist or psychiatrist and also taught children art. She taught art teachers how to teach art to children. She started using one of the pioneers in art therapy. The other thing when she was uh, building furniture, she was asked by this person in Italy to build toys and special furniture for a new school. It was Montessori that asked her to do that. So she was the original designer. What I see in her and what I see in so many of these people was that God brought them, used all their skills so that when they came to Terezin, they could make moments wonderful for themselves because they were helping and for the children and for whomever was with them. And you can see she, she when she was called to go, she packed her suitcase, she took a few clothes and everything else she packed was art supplies. Now what she did with the children, different than Helga's dad who said, paint what you see, told his daughter, she said, she, she would have them imagine what life was like before and she would connect back to that memory and, and she would tell them stories and she would say, okay, something that I mentioned twice in the story, I want you to paint. So they had to really focus on the story. She had different techniques of getting the children to paint and express their feelings. Well, I forgot to mention, she packed, when she was getting ready to pack her suitcases, she took very little of herself and of, of her things and put art supplies in there. That's what she took. And there were over 4,000, close to 5,000 paintings. And somebody put them in a suitcase and hid them. And they were found, and they are at Yad Vashem in various places, and on occasion, they go on tour. One other very significant thing that she had the children do when they painted their artwork is to sign it because the Nazis wanted to eliminate any form of identity and she wanted them to remember their names. As a matter of fact, she also gave them exercises on how to write monograms, writing their name. One survivor said, Friedel's teaching, the time spent during drawing with her, are among the fondest memories of my life. The fact that it was Terezin made it more poignant, but it would have been the same anywhere in the world. I think Friedel was the only one who taught 
without asking for anything in return. She gave of herself. When her husband was called to be transported to uh, Auschwitz, she went with them and with 60 of her children. And they lost their lives there. With our art teacher, Friedrich Brandeis. The artist from Bauhaus and her method, how to teach us children was so excellent that I think that she saved our lives because she always told us children come to the window. It's a beautiful day around Berezina Mountains and above the mountains is sun and behind those mountains is hope. Hope for you and let's hope that you will survive. So it happened. And all those children paintings, she put it in a suitcase. They are about 4,000 children paintings in the Jewish Museum in Prague. And they are now shown all over the world. With our art teacher, Friedrich Would you stop the video, please? The artist from Bauhaus. With our teacher, with our Anna, would you ask him to stop the video, please? We got a new guy up there. The other one that was working when I started is there. I'm sorry. The artist from Father God, stop the video, I've often said, I'm the human, it's a machine, and I'm going to win. So there. Almost. There are some of the drawings of her children. The girls of room 28. Oh, I, want, I do want to say this. Of the 15,000 children that went through Terezin, 150 survived. And you know, as I was going through researching the biographies of these children, there was one, um, and I couldn't find much information, and then I realized he was 11 to 14 years old, and he left poetry. I mean, it's phenomenal. You know, well, anyway, the girls of room 28 still get together, they're survivors. They had a motto, an emblem, about a flag, a hymn, 60 girls were together and she was their art teacher. Oh, Willie Grug. Oh, you're not on the same slide I'm on. 
There we go, now we are. There's the girls of room 28. This man, gentleman, was a chemist, a teacher, and a leader of Zionist youth, also in that Maccabee Hatzara, and he was managed to appoint, he was appointed to manage the girls' home. He he was the director of children and youth. Not much know, is known about Willie, yet they brought he brought poems and artwork of the children to Terzine. So there you have a department, by the way a Department of Children and Youth that was established by the leadership. Alice was a tireless worker. I will try to bear witness as best I can so that it will survive me. Do not believe in finality. Create a beginning. And that's what, that's what they, can you see? Can you see the extraordinary will to live and every individual became ordinary. That became ordinary. The extraordinary became ordinary there in that experience. They raised the bar, the new, the new level. I'm completely exhausted. Here there is no one who loves me, and there is one who loves me. But he is far away, and I would have to cry today if I thought of him. I'm completely exhaust exhausted. She would go back and help others. She said, that was in her diary, later, later that day she said, the ghetto's being reorganized, no more transports for the time being. Everyone's too exhausted to start over again, but we will do it. We are the God-appointed slaves of our eternally unfailing energy who are condemned to rebuild what has been destroyed, to rebuild everything. It's like trying to hold back a waterfall with two outstretched hands. We are also exhausted, although our wakefulness never ends. That is the exercise that will last a thousand years. Um, what she did was she worked with another gentleman to keep track of what was going on in that camp. And by that, I mean what the Nazis were doing. A young man took it upon himself to preserve Zev, as many documents as possible, regarding Terezin's true purpose. When he was deported, Alice took over this responsibility she secretly moved orders that were put on the bulletin board daily by the Council of Elders. She also saved prohibitions, bylaws, forms. And both Ziv and Alice survived, and they went back. She, and 
they unearthed the documents they had buried in a passageway. And they were married in 1947. Oh, and this lady. She worked with the children. They ch there was no medicine in the hospital. She was a night nurse. So what she did, she had written songs, she had, she'd played guitar, she had published music prior. She would sing to the children at night. Her son, Haas, she got out. Uh, there was a, a, a group that uh, sent children out and he went to the UK. So he was, he was saved. When her husband was deported, to Auschwitz in October 44, Elsie Weber volunteered to join him with their son, Tommy. She didn't want to break up the family. He hid his wife's manuscripts in a shed. It is said that they sang, that she sang to her son and many other children as she accompanied them to the gas chambers. He survived, her husband survived him, her, and he and the son were reunited. Here is one of her songs. And it, the words are not out now on the screen. But just listen. I don't know if you can turn up the volume just... Okay, stop, stop the video, please. I found this quote while researching, and I sent this one and another one to Stephanie uh, in Israel, the one who had originally done the presentation. And um, she said, I'm going to use these. And I said, oh, good, I can finally help you. Just so you know, Czechoslovakia had been the most culturally vibrant nation in Europe. Prague was on the level with Vienna, Berlin, and Paris. This is the only known photo of inmates performing the Requiem Mass. 
it was learned from rote from one sheet of music. There's 150 uh, adult chorus. They even gave this as part of the charade when the Red Cross came. Uh, they, they presented this and even Eichmann heard it. They gave plays, uh, symphonies by Mozart and Beethoven uh, among the pieces frequently form, performed, operas, Carmen, Tusca, The Marriage of Figaro, The Bartered Bride, of course, Bundabar. All of these went on, and the practicing went on after hours. And this is what I hit me when, this is the other quote about when extraordinary become ordinary. I think the quality was so high because the people were playing, and she's talking about the orchestras, for the love of music in such a place, for moral support more than for entertainment. There was no money involved, no jealousy. Everyone was equal, playing to the best of their ability in the moment. Victor Ullman used to say that the urge to play and create in Terezine was the urge to live. Of the 140,000, about 80,000 were sent to Auschwitz. About 34,000 died there, mostly old age. Okay, well, uh, and with not only the conditions of old age, but the conditions of terrazine. But they all had that will to live. Now, this poem was written by one of the Vedim guys in the Republic of Skid. I am a Jew. I am a Jew. A Jew I shall remain. Even if I die of hunger, I will not give up my nation. I will always... I will fight always for my nation. On my honor, I will never be ashamed of my nation. On my honor, I am proud of my nation, a nation most worthy of honor. Even though I am oppressed, I shall always live again. Now you see Peter Gintz's family. Gideon Klein was a piano player. He started when he was six. And he wrote a lot of music. He gave his music to his older sister, Aliska. He died less than two months after his 25th birthday in Auschwitz. But when he departed, he gave his music and that of fellow, he just, uh, to he entrusted his music to Irma, a former girlfriend, and he said, if you two meet after the war, you can get my music. And Irma and Aliska, his older sister, did meet and save his music. I don't know if you've seen the video on YouTube. I've seen it a number of times. Harry Winston, who... Remember, they, they, 
gather, he, they, he was in a big auditorium and they brought together, and he didn't know it right away, but all the, the people sitting around him were the children he saved. Those were children from Czechoslovakia, and I just learned. There's a difference between passive goodness and active goodness, which is, in my opinion, the giving of one's time and energy in the alleviation of pain and suffering. It entails going out, finding and helping those in suffering and danger, and not merely in leading a, an exemplary life in a purely passive way of doing no wrong. I promised you last week, I told you about that young couple, or the, the, the brother and sister. Holocaust survivors, I'm told, will not tell their story to their children, but to the grandchildren, for those of you who didn't hear the story. The grandson of a Holocaust survivor got his grandfather to talk, and he gave him a lot of facts and stuff, and, but as he talked, the grief for his sister welled up, and he was just, he, he grieved because he never, he didn't, he felt his sister perished, and he had no, he just, he grieved her. They were children. Well, the grandson gently ended the conversation and then went off to the Ad Vashem online library and typed in the name. Now, this library has the names, uh, people are entering the forms of people, the names of people who perished in the Holocaust. Well, he entered his grandfather's name and up came a record. And he goes, well, I was just talking to him. In Toronto, I was just there. He scrolled down at the bottom. They always have to put who entered the name. It was his sister living in Israel. And so here is a video where they got to meet. 65 years 